the Slaughter in May podcast. Hello and welcome to the sixth and last in this series of Slaughter in May podcasts, looking at key topics for employers in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. My name's Claire Fletcher and I'm a professional support lawyer in the employment team here at Slaughter in May. And I'm Dave Rintle, one of the associates in the employment team. Today's podcast focuses on flexible working in the context of COVID-19. Dave and I will look at some of the trends we've seen in the past few months, think about what we expect to see going forward and highlight some of the legal risk areas. We'll end with some key practical takeaways for employers. I should say this podcast is being recorded on the 12th of August and reflects the law and guidance as it stands today. So Dave, can you set the scene for us in terms of the sort of flexibility we've seen during lockdown? Yeah, so listeners will be all too familiar with the impact that COVID-19 and lockdown has had on their own working patterns and arrangements. Homeworking had been increasing gradually over recent years, but with lockdown came the arrival of homeworking on an unprecedented scale. And we've recorded a separate podcast dealing specifically with homeworking. Um, For those with conflicting obligations like childcare, homeschooling and caring responsibilities, we've seen the swift introduction of informal flexible arrangements. Some are working compressed hours, some have divided their days into shifts with partners to ensure one can work while the other manages childcare and schooling, and others have simply muddled through, somehow fitting in their working hours around everything else that the lockdown has thrown at them. And I think both you and I, Dave, fall into that category. Uh, And now with the relaxing of lockdown and the reopening of workplaces, many people are seeing their working patterns changing yet again. Yes, with with some now dividing their working time between the home and the workplace, we're seeing staggered shifts and staggered start and finish times to reduce density in the workplace and to avoid travel at busier times. Flexible furlough uh, now allows employers to furlough workers um, for part of the week, although perhaps worth mentioning that at the moment there seems to be limited take up of the the flexibility offered uh, by the latest version of the scheme. Partly, we think, due to the difficulties of monitoring and calculating working hours and furloughed hours, um, complexity around what you can reclaim from HMRC and what employers themselves must pay. More prevalent at the moment, uh, employers are continuing to rotate employees on furlough. So parts of the workforce are spending weeks on furlough while another cohort is working before then rotating. Looking forward then into the coming months, uh, employers are facing some difficult decisions. The CJRS will, of course, close at the end of October, so employers will need to decide what they do with employees who are still furloughed at that stage. Assuming for now that there is no redundancy situation, we've recorded a separate podcast on that. So some employees might be brought straight back onto their previous working pattern. Perhaps more likely, though, some changes will be needed so that the employee is able to work more flexibly and could be required to work more flexibly if needed. There is some speculation we might see a resurgence of the previously maligned zero hours contract, for example. On the other hand, though, some employees who previously worked part time and flexibly may want to increase their hours to provide more certainty and stability, uh, for example, if their partner has been made redundant. Overall, there's a very uncertain outlook at the moment, and I think employers will want as much flexibility as possible to respond to that. Yes, uh, and the situation continues to change all the time, of course. So the the flexible arrangements that suit individuals at one point in time may well change as the current situation develops. 
At the moment, the government's focus seems to be on getting people back to the workplace, provided that that can be done safely. But uh, an increase in virus levels could see further local or indeed national lockdowns. Uh, we may also see a return to shielding for vulnerable workers. And of course, the childcare setting and school situation remains uncertain. All of these have the potential to impact on working patterns. So employers need to be prepared to adapt to these changing circumstances in the next few months. And one of the main themes I wanted to draw out today is that the current legal framework for flexible working is not very well suited to these current circumstances we find ourselves in. We, we may see some changes to the law in the coming months. Even before the COVID outbreak, the government had committed to make flexible working the default position for all jobs, unless the employer has a good reason to reject it. And the COVID pandemic has only strengthened the case for that. So I think it's going to be inter interesting to see how and when the law changes to keep pace with these new working models. In the meantime, Dave, perhaps you could explain a bit more about the current legal framework and what employers need to think about when handling flexible working requests. Well, the first thing to bear in mind is that anyone can make a request to work flexibly at any time. And, and for reasons we'll come on to, it's sensible to give all such requests proper consideration. But only certain requests that satisfy the statutory requirements um, need to be treated as formal requests under the flexible working legislation. Only employees who have been employed for at least six months can make a formal request. Their application must be in writing um, and contain certain prescribed information uh, about the change being requested, the date that it would take effect and what impact they think the change will have on the employer. There's no specific process required when considering a request, um, but the employer has to deal with the requests in a reasonable manner, taking into account the relevant ACAS code. This generally involves a meeting with the employee, uh, which may of course have to be undertaken remotely at the moment, uh, and a decision must generally be taken within three months of the request. And when they're making that decision, employers need to bear in mind that a formal flexible working request can only be refused for one of eight specified statutory grounds. These include the burden of additional costs, a detrimental impact on the ability to meet customer demand or on quality or performance, an inability to either reorganise work among existing staff or to recruit additional staff, or there not being enough work during the periods the employee proposes to work. So that's the statutory process in overview. The next common question we're asked is what exposure could employers face for getting this wrong? Well, there's limited direct exposure under flexible working legislation itself. The, the maximum amount of compensation that a tribunal can award is at the moment £4,304, which on its own may not be the sort of money that would keep employers awake at night. But there are important incentives for dealing with flexible working requests properly. Um, ignoring or, or mismanaging a request may leave employers exposed to other claims. Firstly, for constructive dismissal based on a breach of trust and confidence. Um, and secondly, there's a really important discrimination angle to bear in mind when dealing with flexible working requests. Yes, and just to pick up on that, Dave, this means that employers should always handle requests for flexible working sensitively and reasonably and shouldn't stick too slavishly to the statutory conditions or rely on purely procedural defects to refuse an application. And just to give a few examples of that, 
informal requests, of course, don't fall within the scope of the statutory regime, but they could still give rise to discrimination claims if they're not handled appropriately. And the same goes for requests from individuals who aren't employees and therefore aren't eligible for the statutory right to request. And finally, an, an employment tribunal has quite limited scope to examine the refusal of a flexible working request under the statutory scheme, provided that one of the eight statutory reasons that I've just talked about has been shown. But the employer's reasoning and the impact on the individual could clearly be far more relevant for discrimination purposes. Yes, uh, the classic area of concern with flexible working requests is sex discrimination, since historically most requests have been made by women uh, to help manage childcare responsibilities. But the, the world is gradually changing. Um, do we think this is still a risk area? Uh, and will the COVID pandemic make any difference? Well, I think even before COVID, we were starting to see a change of approach, as you say, Dave. Uh, more men are now taking on childcare responsibilities and tribunals are gradually catching up and accepting that it's not inevitable that women will be disproportionately affected by a refusal to grant flexible working. Ultimately, if there are a more even number of applications between men and women, it might be that indirect sex discrimination claims become less of a risk but as ever, much will depend on the particular circumstances. What we've seen with COVID is that it's undoubtedly increased the number of men who are working flexibly. Although there is also some evidence that women have been taking on the greater share of childcare and homeschooling during lockdown. So for now, I think the risk of indirect sex discrimination remains. We shouldn't forget though, that requests for flexible working in the COVID context might involve a risk of discrimination on other grounds including disability, age and race. And I'm thinking in particular here about employees who are concerned about their vulnerability to COVID and want working arrangements which help them to manage that. Okay, so uh, moving away from discrimination, we think there's little doubt that employers will be dealing with an increased volume of requests in the coming months and years. Um, with that comes the problem of competing requests. So how should employers approach and, and prioritise requests for flexible working from employees? The guidance from ACAS is that employers should consider flexible working requests in the order in which they are received. Um, this would mean that if the first request is accepted, the second request must then be considered against the new background. However, the guidance goes on to acknowledge that employers may receive multiple requests for flexible working at the same time. In that scenario, ACAS suggests that employers can choose to stick with the first-come, first-served approach, or alternatively, discuss with applicants to see if there is room for adjustment or compromise before coming to a decision, which is clearly a sensible approach, uh, and tribunals have in fact criticised employers in the past for not taking this approach. Yes, so far so good um, in terms of the ACAS approach here, but... Another of the suggestions that they go on to make is that employers could effectively choose which request they accept at random, pull names out of a hat. Um, we think there's unlikely to be very much benefit to that approach and that employers need to be a bit wary of the ACAS guidance in this respect. The other key point I wanted to make here is that as far as ACAS and the statutory process is concerned, the reason why an employee is making their request for flexible working is irrelevant. However, in the wider industrial relations context, the reason for the request is likely to come into play. And although as part of the statutory process, there isn't any obligation on the employee to give their reason that they're making their request, 
For the employer's perspective, understanding that reason can help them to avoid discrimination. And we would say it would be reasonable for the employer to ask for that reason as part of the process. And it can also help the employer deal with competing requests. But whatever method employers choose for dealing with competing requests, it will be really important to try and ensure consistency. So we would suggest that employers make sure there is some central oversight from HR, for example, of all flexible working requests to help achieve this. Another of the difficulties with the current flexible working legislation is that it's generally viewed as a right to request um, a permanent contractual change. Although, strictly speaking, nothing in the legislation prevents a request for a temporary change. A permanent change may not be a good fit with the needs of employers or employees at the moment, given the, the significant uncertainty facing businesses due to COVID. One option that employers should consider if faced with requests that might pose some challenges in the longer term is to allow trial periods of flexible working. Now, there's no specific provision in the flexible working legislation dealing with trial periods. That means that an employee can't insist on being given a trial period of his requested arrangements. However, as an aspect of the statutory duty is to deal with applications in a reasonable manner, employers should be prepared to explain why it would not be feasible to offer a trial period if that's its position. And from a practical perspective, when you're putting in place a trial period, you'll need to make sure it's long enough to make sure that there can be a fair review of the new working practices. And we would suggest setting a number of review points during that period so that you can discuss how those arrangements are working and make any necessary adjustments. Also, it will be important to make sure the parties agree to extend the decision period so that the trial period takes place before the final decision. I think it's fair to say that having a trial period could make the employer's ultimate refusal more contentious unless it's clear that the trial period has been unsuccessful from both sides. And lockdown has, of course, in many cases, been a kind of informal trial period for flexible working, a dry run for arrangements which employees might now want to retain. And employers will need to decide if a permanent change can be justified once business as normal resumes, or alternatively, if arrangements which were essentially good enough to get us through a highly unusual working situation are no more than that and can't be supported permanently. And just to pick up on that, an an employee's circumstances during COVID may have led to a taking of flexibility. Um, If the employer doesn't intend to support that flexibility on an ongoing basis, the issue they face is how do they bring employees back to their usual working pattern? Uh, Much will depend on how and why the flexibility was first been in place and what has changed now to, to justify a return to the usual pattern. Uh, in many cases, there would have been no change to the employee's contractual arrangements. So uh, on, on the face of it, the employer could simply point to the contract and require the employee to perform its terms. At this stage, the alternative arrangements are unlikely to, to have been persisting in a way which would entitle the employee to claim any contractual variation has impliedly taken place. However, trust and confidence, as as well as good industrial relations, may may weigh against the employer immediately requiring a change back to the usual working pattern. And this is only likely to be successful with good communication and engagement with the affected employees. So the final point I wanted to just discuss briefly is to look at some of the wider implications of a workforce working more flexibly. 
Well, flexible working will often involve less visibility, at least in the traditional sense, and within usual working hours. In some cases, that might lead to less cohesion within the workforce or a greater risk of exclusion for those who work more flexibly. And it might make it more challenging for managers to have oversight of their team and more difficult to compare performance amongst employees. So businesses just need to be aware of this and, and think about new ways of making a fairer assessment where employees are working flexibly. There might also need to be some new thinking around things like reward and benefit design. There are, of course, legal protections for part-time workers, which require a pro-rata approach to benefit entitlements, unless this wouldn't be appropriate. But I think employers might need to think beyond that in terms of what will truly incentivize flexible workers, especially if this is going to become the default approach in future. So what are the key takeaways for employers? Uh, employers should be reviewing their flexible working policy and thinking in particular about allowing more than one application every 12 months. In the current climate, it may be counterproductive to say you won't consider further requests just because a formal request within the statutory regime has already been made. Consider allowing temporary periods of flexible working rather than a permanent contractual change. Consider making provision for trial periods. And the increased volume of requests means you may well have to think carefully about how you deal with competing requests um, and reflect that in your policy. Don't be too process driven. Um, we talked about this earlier. Be aware of the wider legal and industrial relations context and, and consider all the requests on their objective merits. And finally, think about flexibility by default and by design. Um, as much as uh, flexible working has been forced on many businesses by COVID, all the science suggests that it's here to stay long after the pandemic has abated. And that brings us to the end of today's podcast and indeed the end of this series. Thank you all for listening. You can find all the podcasts in this series on our website. In the meantime, if you'd like more information about anything we've discussed in this podcast, please feel free to contact either Dave or me or your usual Slaughter and May contact. Thank you and goodbye. For more information on this topic or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.